Lent is a time of repentance. Over and over and over again, we hear this theme return. It is a call to repentance. But what does it actually mean to repent? Well, as Alex has just said, repentance in its most basic form means to turn back towards God. How do you do that? Just how does that look? Well, repentance, we learn, has three parts. First, you acknowledge that you've done something wrong, that you committed a sin. Second, you feel contrite or you feel sorry for that sin. And third, you desire to no longer continue in that sin or commit it again in the future. Instead, you desire to live the holy life commanded by God. This seems so straightforward. But in reality, we struggle with this repentance process, and our nature is to rebel against each of these three steps of repentance. And instead of turning back towards God, seek self-justification, an excuse that prevents us from ever taking responsibility for the sin in the first place. Let's look at each step and see how this unfolds. So the first step of repentance is to acknowledge that you've done something wrong. To do this, we must first know that we have done something wrong, and then we must take responsibility for it. We can't fall into the trap of trying to blame somebody else for our sin by saying, she made me do it. We can't minimize it by saying, why are you so worked up about it? It was no big deal. It was just a joke. We realize that what we did was wrong because we evaluate and compare our life to the Ten Commandments and see how we fall short of keeping them in our everyday life. In the Catechism, we are taught to ask ourselves, what sins should we confess? We learn to give this answer. Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. Before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. And which sins are these? Consider your place according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything? done any harm. When we reflect on our life in this way, it becomes harder to wiggle out of the responsibility for what we've done. We are turned to look at God's Word, and we consider our lives according to it. And when this happens, we can see that what changes over time is not God's expectations for His people, but our willingness to justify the sins that we commit. And that's what Paul is trying to combat today in our epistle lesson when he references the Old Testament stories of the sins that the people commit in the wilderness after they left Egypt and are waiting to go into the promised land. In this text, Paul points out that the Israelites were impatient, they were tempted by false idols, they engaged in sexual immorality, they complained against God, and they thought only of themselves. But, as Paul goes on to say, lest you think too highly of yourself, keep in mind that these are the exact same sins you're tempted with each and every day. 
We are no better than the people of old. Our sinful inclinations are exactly the same as all of the sinful inclinations of the people who've come before us. That's the reason why the Ten Commandments can still be used to show how we have sinned, because we're tempted in the same way as our fathers and our forefathers. And it's the same way that our children and grandchildren will be tempted in the future. So lest we fall into the danger of thinking we have progressed or evolved beyond such outdated thinking and the attitudes of people before us, the Ten Commandments remind us we sin exactly the same way that they did. So the first step of repentance is this. Acknowledge and confess that you have done something wrong. The second part of repentance is that you feel contrition or you feel sorry or remorseful for the sin that you did. Can't be proud of the sins you've committed. Now, pastor, you might be thinking, who's actually proud of their sins? Well, there are those who brag about what they've done. The child that feels good for hitting their sibling because they finally got even. The teenager that's proud that they've pulled the scam over their, off on their parents to get what they want. The adult who counts up their sexual conquest and brags to one another about the number of people they've been with. The person who loves the feeling of being in the know and having the information that others do not so they can share the gossip. We can go on and on and on with the examples. But even more than that, this includes people who minimize their sin, shrug it off as no big deal. At least I'm not like those people. That's what Jesus is talking about in the gospel for today. Because Jesus is being confronted by people who are comparing themselves to the Galileans killed by Pilate and the Jews that were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell. Certainly those people were sinners greater than I am, is what they are saying to Jesus. After all, look at how God let them die. And when we do that, when we fail to take our sins seriously, we've not truly repented. I explain it to our catechism students this way. If you come and tell me that you've committed to sin, and you're bragging about it, you're excited that you've done it, yes, you have admitted and confess that you sinned. But you have not repented of that sin because there is no remorse for what you have done. And until there is remorse, there is no repentance. And that brings us to the third part, which is that you can no longer desire to commit that sin in the future. But notice the key word there. It is desire. Because it is impossible for you to look at the future and be confident I will no longer sin. It's impossible for you to look at the future and think you might never sin. Because no person other than Jesus has ever lived or ever will live who can live without sin. It's simply not possible for this to happen. However, it should be noted that there are popular televangelists and Christian authors that will make this argument. And they will say about themselves that they no longer sin as we already heard from the Catechism, consider your position in life, and you will find that you have sinned against God and against those who are in your life, and for this you should repent. But to have the desire to no longer sin means that you aren't kneeling during confession and then looking forward to the sin you're going to go do later that afternoon. It 
means that when you sin, you're disgusted by what you've done. You have the desire to repent so that your sin can be removed from you. It means you look at the Ten Commandments and not only ask, how can I keep from breaking them, but also how can I live in such a way that I keep them? How can I do a better job of loving God and loving my neighbor? This is the point that Ezekiel is trying to make in our Old Testament lesson for today, when he says, Yet, if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statue of his life, not doing injustice, he will surely live. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. Ezekiel points out that for the wicked, for the sinner, repentance involves restoring what you have damaged and seeking to do what is right in its place. Repentance means that you will seek to do, even though we know that next week you'll be right back here on your knees, repenting to God once more because you were unable to do it. And it's in this passage that Ezekiel also gives us the gospel we need to hear in this call to repentance. Here again, Ezekiel says, none of the sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. What a wonderful promise God is making, that in response to your repentance, no sin that you have committed will be remembered by God. He will not hold it against you. That's why the Catechism also teaches us this when asked the question, what is confession? That confession has two parts. First, we should confess our sins, and second, we should receive absolution, that is, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Do you hear the beauty of what God has done in this? That we should receive absolution, that is, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven? That means that God has placed me here in your midst to make sure that he has seen your repentance. He has heard your confession. That you know he has forgiven your sin. The purpose of a pastor in a congregation is to make certain above all else that you know God loves you. He forgives you. He counts you as one of his children. And that when your pastor hears your confession, it is his promise to you that he will not run away in fear, he will not shun you out of disgust, and he will not make public what you have said. But instead, he will rejoice alongside you in the repentance and forgiveness that God has given to you. Lent is a time of repentance, a time of encouragement to confess your sins, Express the remorse over what you have done and consider how you desire to live life under the grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father. We do this because Lent reminds us of the depth of the love that God has for his people. That he is patient, like a man who's planted a fig tree and waits for it to bear good fruit. That he helps us endure the temptations of this world just as he did the Israelites in the wilderness with the promise that he does not remember the sins committed against him, just as Ezekiel has said. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.